The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Welcome to another episode of Lever Time. I'm David Sirota. On today's show, we're going to be talking about a topic that's been simmering beneath the surface of our national conversation, yet it holds profound implications for our society. We're talking about the crises facing men and boys in America. Unfortunately, the American right has dominated the conversation about this topic, and some folks on the left just try to avoid it for fear of being criticized for daring to talk about men and masculinity, as if talking about that topic is somehow insulting or unacceptable. I think it's immoral to avoid such an important topic, so my guest today is going to be the author of the fascinating new book called Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters, and What to Do About It. We explore the data showing that men and boys as a group in America are struggling in distinct ways and how the failure to address these very real problems is inadvertently fueling the growth of alt-right groups. For our paid subscribers, we're also always dropping bonus episodes into our Lever Premium podcast feed. Last week, we had an interview with economist Isabella Weber, one of the first economists to raise the alarm about profit-driven inflation. If you want access to our premium content, head over to levernews.com and click the subscribe button in the top right to become a supporting subscriber. That will give you access to the Lever Premium podcast feed, it gives you access to our exclusive live events, and it gives you access to even more in-depth reporting. And of course, you'll be directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. Producer Frank is out of town on vacation the next couple of weeks, so we're going to go directly to our interview this week. My guest today is Richard Reeves. He's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and as I said, the author of the book of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters, and what to do about it. We explore the rapid reshaping of the concept of masculinity and how the issue is being manipulated by the likes of politicians like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, and how masculinity as an issue is being used as a recruiting tool for alt-right groups. Richard Reeves emphasizes the importance of addressing these issues without sidelining other marginalized groups. As he says, Quote, problems that are not addressed become grievances, and grievances are exploited. That's something worth thinking about. Hey, Richard, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. So it's such an important topic, and your book is really fascinating. It's called Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling why it matters, and what to do about it. It details how economic and social changes of recent decades have diminished specifically the lives of men. So that's a good place to start. What are some of the um, most telling statistics, uh, telling signals that the modern male is struggling, and specifically uh, struggling uh, as, a, as a group, as distinct uh, from the struggles of sort of the population writ large? Sure. Well, as it's you, David, let's start with the economy and the labor market, where the the well-told story about wage stagnation uh, is particularly acute for men. So the fact that most American men earned less in 2019 than most American men did in 1979, that's a non-trivial economic and I would argue, therefore, cultural and social fact. So wage stagnation for most men. Now, of course, it's also true that wages didn't grow that quickly for working class women by comparison to other women, but they did grow across the board. So women's wages did grow across the board just faster at the top than than at the bottom, whereas for men, you actually saw wage stagnation. And what that means is that the only reason that middle class American households saw any rise in their household incomes at all over that period was because of women, was women's work, women's wages. If anything, 
men's economic contribution became tilted slightly negative over that time period, right? So, and again, I think that's all kinds of downstream consequences. And then if we turn to something like education, what we see is that here I'm talking kind of more of a relative story than an absolute story, but a massive overtaking of uh, girls and women uh, of men, such that there's now a bigger gender gap in education today than there was in 1972. So on college campuses, for example, women are further ahead of men now than men were ahead of women when we passed Title IX in 1972. So it may or may not matter. And then the last thing, we, we obviously we can get into these, but, but some of the consequences for that are difficulty around family formation and deaths of despair. So there's been lots of discussion of deaths of despair, which is from suicide, alcohol, drugs, but maybe a little bit less attention to the fact that men are at least three times higher risk of one of those deaths of despair than women are. So deaths of despair is largely a male, and I would again say largely a working class male problem. So on the wage stagnation question, that, that, I mean, there, there's something I want to go into on that, which is to say that there, there has been a gender wage gap for a very long time. Are you saying what we've seen, let's just use that as an example, that what we've seen is that that not only has the gender wage gap uh, somewhat closed, although it's not closed, uh, but it has somewhat narrowed, not just because women's wages are going up, but also because men's wages have stagnated or actually dropped. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to get at here is mm. that 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 what we're seeing is is not just a natural narrowing where men's wages continue uh, to rise from the 1970s, which didn't happen, and women's wages rise faster to close that gap, but actually this is men's wages going down. I, and what I'm trying to get at here is the alternate history is could be a history of uh, rising tides lifts all boats. I mean, I, I kind of hate that term, but there is an alternate history where everything is actually improving for both men and women. It just improves uh, more quickly for women to deal with historic uh, historic disparities. But are, is what you're saying that is, yeah. uh, for instance, on that set of issues, that's not happening? That actually, it's, it's yes. actually kind of a negative story for men? Yeah, on wages specifically, and it's really important to be clear what's true about some statistics might not be true of others so this not going to be true of education for example but in terms of earnings yes so the typical way in which the gender pay gap is measured is at the median so when people hear so it's 82 83 cents in the dollar um that women earn uh, versus men what's being referred to there is median and one reason, not the, ma the main reason why the gender pay gap has narrowed over the last few decades is that women's wages have risen quite sharply at the median, 30-something percent or more. But part of it is because male wages have dropped at the median. Right. Right. So it's it's that's not the main reason for the rise in it, narrowing, but it's one of the reasons. And, and I don't think it's controversial to suggest that that's bad news. And that if we'd seen... Like similar uh, similar levels of women's wage growth at the median, and we hadn't seen wage stagnation for men. Actually, it's not clear to me that that would have been a worse world, right? And so, I, I don't think many people want to close the gender wage gap by crashing male wages. Right? No one wants that. So, it's an important it's an important thing to note. But but it is also, and I know this is an issue you're very interested in, David. Like at the top of the distribution, men and women have seen rising wages. Now, women even faster than men, but but up towards that 80th percentile, 90th percentile, women have seen faster wage growth. But both men and women have seen it. So, what's my overall understanding of these trends in the labour market over the last few decades is that we've seen a narrowing of the gender wage gap for the reasons we just discussed, and a sharp widening of the class wage gap, right? So you're seeing these, they're pulling in different directions. So the gap between the median and the top has gotten much wider, but the gap between men and women at each level has gotten narrower. And that's why you have to think about both. So I, I wanna ask about the, the maleness part of this. Um, in looking across wages, uh, uh, jobs, uh, education levels, et cetera, et cetera, healthcare, um, uh, deaths of despair. How much of this, what we might call male malaise, is really related to maleness, however we define that, 
rather than other individual factors like economic inequality, geography, uh, again, education, right? Like, how do we narrow in on, I guess, first and foremost, what is maleness other than a biological state? But how do we really narrow in on this as a problem of maleness or at least a problem uh, uh, where the, the factor at issue, the germane factor, is, is maleness? Yeah, or... Yeah, so there's two different ways in which we could get at this. Like one is just men as defined as male in the relevant data set. Okay. Right. And then another is like what do we mean by male, which is a whole different set of questions. But but for example, when we just talked at some length about the gender pay gap. Well, in order to measure the gender pay gap, you have to measure the wages of both women and men defined in a binary and then compare sure, them. Sure. So um so then so this I think it's a great question. And and look the it's no, not going to be a surprise from someone who just wrote a whole book about boys and men and is now, uh, I've now set up a new organization to work on the issues of boys and men. It's going to say there is enough evidence that some of these problems, a number of them, do break quite strongly uh, along male-female lines as to justify the attention on men in particular. But it's an, in the end, I think it's an empirical question that, that sometimes gets confused for a cultural question. And so these debates about sort of wither masculinity, which have been going on forever, as far as I can tell, mm-hmm. like, they don't excite me as much as the fact that the male suicide rate is four times higher than the female suicide rate, has risen by 25% in the last decade and rose very sharply between 2020 and 2021, 8% for young men alone. And there wasn't an increase for, for women. Now, that isn't to say that Female suicide isn't a problem. Of course not. And it, we'd never say that if it was the other way around. But it is to say, okay, when you see a fourfold gap, okay. And and what so, so, sometimes people will say, well, you know, I'm drawing attention to the gaps in education, some of which are, you know, the data I referred to earlier. People will say, well, you know, no one cared when it was the other way around, when women were that far behind men. And I, to that, my honest answer is, yeah, people did care. And we did a whole bunch of stuff about it, and quite rightly too. We passed laws. We had you know significant campaigns to try and overcome it. Like we look, we looked at those gaps in education and said, "Hold on, that's that doesn't look right," and did something about it. And so, to some extent, it becomes an empirical question as to like, is there enough of a gender gap here on whatever the issue is to say, "Hmm, yeah, we should look, we should look at that." And I would say the same is true the other way around. For example, like there are lots of issues, the gender pay gap we've just talked about. Just because 40% of women earn more than the average man now doesn't mean there isn't still an issue about gender pay gaps. And by definition, that's mostly about women. And there are lots of other issues, access to capital. Right. I mean, both things can be true at the same time, right? I mean, there can be a problem with the gender pay gap and there can be a problem with with what you're talking about when it comes to men men actually having their wages go down. Two things can be true at the same time. It's just seeing that pattern. So, you know, as a sort of bit of a wonk, I'd look at the data and I say, is there a strong enough pattern here to make you think, okay, this is worthy of looking at it through that lens? And if it doesn't pass that test, okay. And there will be a whole bunch of issues where you're like, actually, there isn't much to see here in terms of gender, right? But there are other issues where there clearly is in one direction or the other. And then I think we should be gender sensitive. That said, we should, of course, also look at how that intersects by class, by race, etc. So, we might talk about the gender pay gap, but we shouldn't forget the fact that white women now earn a lot more than black men and even more than black women, right? And that wasn't true in 1979. So white women have seen very strong increases in their wages such that there's now, for every dollar earned by a white woman, a black man earns about 84 cents, which is similar to the gender gap. Now, the point of that is not to say that that the gender gap isn't important and real. It is just to say that it's very important that we don't look at these things just through one lens, but try to look at them through different lenses. Yeah, and our, our media and political culture is always looking for zero sum. Oh, if you're talking about this problem, it means it, it, it implies you don't care about this other problem. Yeah. It's like, actually, there can be <laughs> multiple problems, right? Yeah, like, we, we can like more we than can, one problem. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we certainly yeah. do have more than one problem. So let's go to what is in your view, fueling this dynamic? Um, Is it mostly the economic issues that you mentioned? Does it have to do with uh, the changing nature of our culture? Is it something in our politics? 
when you look at all the data in in the reporting that you did in your book, where do you come out with like on on like two, three, four really driving factors of this um, all of these problems uh, that stack up as um, particularly or acutely problems in the male population? Well. The way I th- I'd probably put it under three three headings. Number one is the almost independently of everything else, the education system just isn't doing very well by lots of our boys and men now, and and I, and I think in some ways decreasingly well. We have a we have a ten percentage point drop in the share of male teachers. Incredible underinvestment in apprenticeships and vocational forms of learning, which everything else equal tend to be better for boys and men, and all kinds of changes in school environments that just mean that we're not we're not serving very well. It's not to suggest, of course, that there aren't plenty of girls who aren't being served well too. But overall, education as a just a problem in and of itself. Now that then means that more young men hit the labour market or college or whatever, just less well prepared as a result of the education system. So they come out of the education system less well prepared, which is one of the reasons, by the way, that the single biggest risk factor for dropping out of college, controlling for everything else, is being male. Which is one reason why many colleges aren't all that thrilled about, you know, they, 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 they don't want men from a dropout point of view because men are much more likely to drop out than women. But that's predicted by what's happened in high school. So they struggle through our education. They might struggle to land in the labor market. And then they, they, the second bucket is the labor market has been transformed in the last 40, 50 years in such a way as to make it much more difficult for men with modest levels of, of, of education to do okay. And we could have a very long, this is an area that I know you know a lot about, but like as to why that is, globalization, deunionization, yeah, loss of all kinds of jobs, uh, etc. It's not because women came into the labor market, it's because of these other external shocks to the labor market. So that's bucket number two, so that means men are kind of struggling in the labor market. And then bucket number three is the the most contentious one in a way, which is the fact that women have seen such a massive increase in their economic independence means that the very basis upon which men and women form families and relationships has been significantly transformed. In the space of not much more than a generation, the kind of presumption of the male breadwinner has been largely unraveled. And in my view, good, great thing. However, I think that has left a lot of men struggling to catch up with a culture where their role as a breadwinner has first of all been undermined by economic brute facts and then has been undermined by changes in their relationship to women and they've come into it ill-served as well. So you have underskilled men facing a labor market that's become a bit more hostile than the one their dads faced and women who are saying, well, I might not need you. (laughs) And I think all of those then feed off each other. And and I think obviously, at least I'm old enough to feel like, and I'm 47 years old, Gen X, I'm old enough to feel um, inside of that cultural transition in this way. I remember as a kid, the cultural messages of the single uh, male breadwinner model you saw on TV, you saw, I mean, it just, you know, pervaded the culture. And my life has, you know, sort of traversed the transformation of that. But those messages were baked in at at an early age, right? So you're taught one way, hey, this is the way the world works. And then when the world doesn't work that way, you can imagine that that some 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 guys don't don't adjust or have trouble figuring it out or don't want to adjust. Uh, so so I, I guess that's a follow-on question, which is how much of of what you've tracked about the 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 crises facing men, how much of it do you think is kind of uh, transitory? In other words, a, a momentary crisis of a, of a culture in transition versus something that may end up being or that, that could end up being more permanent. Well, I th- you've framed it perfectly, in my view, in terms of this cultural transition and the difficulties that, that we face. And I have changed my view on this quite significantly. And, and, and my change in view is really what's led me to be so deeply involved in this issues. I used to have the view that it was a transition, that 
there was this role for men inevitably that was going to change as a result of the women's movement and feminism good thing to it was probably going to take a while for kind of men to get their head around this and start becoming stay-at-home dads more doing more female roles you know there was that we're going to desegregate both ways but it, it would take time but it would happen. And if I'm being Yeah, and you'd have honest, like, you know, you'd have like your old uncle who like can't adjust and is like cranky. Yeah. But like yeah. ultimately that would age out and we'd be in like a new we'd paradigm. All, we'd kind of get with the program. Right, and, right. And, on a, and, and, and honestly, I think, and I think for those of us who had economic power still, that transition has been easier. I think equality here, I mean, gender equality has been easier for the affluent because upper middle class men are actually still doing pretty well economically and they're figuring out new ways to be in new relationships with their partners which are much more egalitarian now it doesn't mean that even even we and i think i can say we in this context don't have some adjusting to do but by mm -hmm. god is it easier when you're coming into that with economic resources and skills and and education and if i'm being honest i used to probably be quite judgmental of the men who are struggling with the transition i would if not literally, then metaphorically be rolling my eyes at them and saying, come on, guys, just get with the program. Like, you know, yes, uh, sorry, patriarchy's gone. You know, you don't yeah, get like, to get over that it, role right. anymore. Get it. Exactly. Exactly. Get over it was exactly my thought process. And the more I looked at the data and the more I looked at just how fucking difficult it is for a lot of these guys to make this transition, especially those without economic, economic power, the more I've realized that that is actually not a helpful framing. And I actually see if anything something of a growing backlash i see to some extent a potential for going backwards on some of these issues because i think there's been too much eye rolling and too much get over it guys and not enough constructive compassionate help to men we have basically folded our arms and said come on get on get over it yeah feminism good you know tough tough shit guys patriarchy's gone but meanwhile, yeah, sorry, your jobs are gone. Yeah, sorry, the education system sucks. And, you know, sorry that you don't really know what to do with yourself anymore. And, you know, sorry that masculinity itself seems to be a little bit of a contested idea anyway. But get over it. Get with the program. And that get with the program message has actually, I think, driven a lot of men the other way. I, I Listen, I, I agree with that. And I would add one thing to it, which is that I think not only um, does it f create conditions for a backlash, but there are obviously opportunists who want to uh, use those feelings of loss to for their own political goals, right? I mean, the whole uh, uh, politics around masculinity to to use the reality that you've laid out and then use it for a particular, uh, in my view, conservative right-wing political agenda to, to foment those feelings of backlash, I think adds to the possibility that this isn't transitory, uh, that this is something that needs to be addressed because it could end up being systemic and, and permanent. So, so that gets to a, a topic that that that's I think uh, really difficult to talk about, but I think is is worth bringing into this conversation, which is so-called wokeness. Now I put that mm -hmm. that in air quotes because people define that all sort of differently. But but I, I want to get at this question, and the question is about the sense of lost privilege at play as politics and culture have been more attuned to righting historic wrongs with a big focus on empowering uh, and celebrating gender, race, sexuality, identity. There was this scene in the um, TV show White Lotus um, in which uh, the mother at one point, and, and the brilliance of that show is that you don't know, if it, you're sort of supposed to laugh at it and eye roll it, but there's also a quasi bit of truth there where this yeah. sort of affluent mother is talking to her daughters about their sort of disaffected son who like can't fit into the world. And she, she says something to the effect of, you know, it's not easy to be like a, a, a white male kid or a white male young adult coming into this world. And you're sort of like half eye rolling it because like, you know, white men are not the oppressed uh, 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 minority, uh, but there's also a, a bit of truth there. And I think the truth that it's trying to get at a little bit is the idea that we, in trying to right historic wrongs and inequities, uh, gender, race, sexuality, uh, that, that there's sort of like being a, quote, white male is now a kind of cultural epithet. 
that that the idea in our politics, in a lot of ways, a conversation ender can be, oh, well, your position it just proves that you're just a white man being evil because you're a white man. So I guess all of that is prefaced to get to the question of how much do you think the uh, male malaise, the crises facing men have to do with um, the perception that men are uh, are portrayed as the problem, uh, that maleness, uh, masculinity is bad, and and that that people are 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 being judged based on their gender and ruled by the culture guilty uh, before uh, you know before innocent. Let me start with a, a bargain that I would be willing to strike with anybody that's listening to this conversation, which is. If we could agree to stop the use of the word toxic in relation to masculinity <laughs> in exchange for stopping the use of the word woke, I think the world would be a lot better. <laughs> yes. How about we just agree yes. Yes. to drop both those terms? Let's, yes. let's yes. just like, uh, because I think they're both incredibly un- unhelpful. Yes. And, and it does speak a bit to my answer, which is the... This is back to where you started about two thoughts at once, not zero sum, which is that if there are real problems that a group of people are facing, in this case, say, you know, men, right? Working class white men are the ones at the most risk of a death of despair, for example, or a suicide, right? And so in that case, just empirically, that's actually the group who are least privileged on that measure, right? Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't other measures that go the other way, but when you're looking for patterns like that, um, it's important to point out where that's true. And failing to do that, failing to acknowledge the real problems that, that one group might have, doesn't actually make them more likely to be invited into your conversation about the problems faced by another group. It makes them less likely. Mm-hmm. So I I think that denying the by definition that you know boys and men are having could be having real problems or white especially white men could be having real problems by denying that as a possibility in this zero sum way that actually doesn't recruit men or white men to the court to the progressive cause for other groups it just makes them feel like oh well in that case I've got to choose and I'm going to look after myself. And that does become a recruiting sergeant for the alt-right, for those who are saying, you know what? You do have problems. And they, the mainstream, etc., don't care about those problems. So come to me. So problems that are not addressed become grievances, and grievances are exploited. The way to stop them becoming grievances, in my view, is not to say, well, there's, not, there's no problem is not to deny that there's a problem. It is to say, yes, there's a problem. And that's why all of us boring, responsible people are talking about it and doing something about it. If you don't address it, it becomes a grievance. And so I think in some ways, for understandable reasons, the cause of other historically disadvantaged groups is being ill-served by a failure to acknowledge those problems that do exist for boys and men, including for white boys and men. And, and I completely agree. And, and having worked in the um, in, in the Democratic primary in, in 2020, and have been, having previously worked in Democratic campaigns, I mean, I can tell you, especially in 2020, that there was this undercurrent of if you're talk, if you're speaking to the white working class, or have a message even that sort of is inclusive of the white working class inside of a Democratic primary environment, you run the risk of being accused of being insensitive to the iniquities facing uh, women, uh, racial minorities, religious minorities, et cetera, et cetera. It, it goes back to this zero-sum idea. And I remember, I, look, I, everyone who's listening to this knows I worked for Bernie Sanders, and it was, it was, a, it was kind of surprising but also unsurprising that, that, there are, that the, the sort of the rise of, of identity politics has made it um, – more controversial to speak to these problems, even if they are, um, as you say, empirical, right? I mean, these, mm-hmm. these are problems, whether you want to pretend, you know, not acknowledge them or not. I mean, they are problems. But that brings me to this part of this conversation I want to get to playing devil's advocate, because I want to hear your response to them. What would you say, for instance, to someone who says, listening to this conversation, hey, guys, under our current patriarchal society, Men are not the victims. Even if everything you've just said is true, 
men are not the victims. Overall, men still hold uh, most or at least much of the power, uh, including most of the economic and social advantages. Even if I, as a devil's advocate, um, stipulate all of the stats that you've said, the question of focus, yes, they are problems, but we can't really as a society walk and chew gum and that most of the focus should be on the uh, other iniquities, especially the historic iniquities that continue to be with us today. What do you say to that? Well, the first thing I would say is that many of those historic iniquities are based around ethnicity and race. And so I'm very concerned about what's happening to black boys and men, for example. And I have a significant amount of work going on that front. And so it seems pretty clear that on lots of different measures, if you take an intersectional approach, that actually black boys and men are significantly worse off on lots of empirical, in lots of empirical ways than black girls and women, which is not the same as saying that all is rosy for black girls and women, but it is to say that if you're interested in certain issues like upward mobility, black women are as upwardly mobile as white women. But black mm-hmm. men are not as upwardly mobile as white, as white men, which is why this is Raj Chetty's work All of the black-white gap in economic mobility is explained by men. All of it. Wow. Right. Uh, And so, like, that's intersectionality applied in a serious way, which is if you're really worried about the black-white gap on lots of these fronts, then you are required to worry about black boys and black men. So that's the first thing I would say, is that lots of those historic disadvantages do intersect. Now, as far as gender is concerned... Again, it just just depends where you're looking and whether you're allowed to look in two places at once. So I've done a bit of work on the underrepresentation of women in US politics. And this is something you know much more about than I do. But only 25% of members of Congress are women, Mm -hmm. never a female president, uh, etc. I mean, the US is a real, real bad case when it comes to gender representation in politics. Terrible. Um, venture capital money, only 3% of it goes to female founders. We still have boardrooms that are still strongly tilted. But there's been huge progress in boardrooms, by the way, that sometimes isn't acknowledged, but nonetheless, much further to go. So is all of that true? Yes. Are those positions of power right at the apex of society still tilted very strongly male? Absolutely. Should we be doing things to address that? Absolutely. I actually suggested quotas. Uh, around women in politics i think it's because the representation is so important can it also be true that we have this massive crisis in suicide rates among our young men can it also be true that we have uh, that only 60 percent of black boys graduate high school on time in michigan can it also be true that male wages are stagnating can these things also be true yeah so then if you're inviting me to say is it is it more important that male wages are stagnating than that we don't have enough members of, of Congress who are female? I honestly don't know how to answer that question because yeah. I refuse to choose. It just, I, 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 anybody that tells me I have to choose, it seems to me, is the enemy. I'm not, I'm not playing that game because I care about both. Well, and, and, and to be clear, I think a lot of people who are listening to this podcast are politically minded listeners. You can pretend this isn't a problem, but elections aren't going to pretend this is a problem. If all you care about is elections, I mean, here's a stat. Mm -hmm. It's an incredible stat. Support for the Democratic presidential candidate in 2020 reached a new low among black men uh, in the 2020 election. That's according to an NBC News poll. 80% of black men still supported Joe Biden, uh, but that is down from Hillary Clinton and down from Barack Obama. So in other words, Donald Trump made, you know, I mean, it was I guess in the size of the country, not huge, but sort of over the course of elections and how you know elections go, a very large shift in black male support to the Republican presidential candidate. And I bring that up only to say that even if you don't want to acknowledge this this set of issues on its merits, if you care about just you know the outcome of elections, uh, there, therein is something that you should you should care about, even if you don't care about uh, sort of the individual issues that we're talking about. That it's clearly that, that this this issue is clearly being reflected in national elections. So, the other devil's advocate question I want to ask is to go even further. What if it's something about maleness or the male American experience and population that actually is the problem. So 
This comes up a lot in the discussion of um, mass shooters. We don't see a lot of, if any, female mass shooters. We all know the basic profile of uh, the male shooter. It's you know, it's a it's a young, typically uh, white male, uh, and there's an argument that it has something to do that that that, that maleness, American maleness, uh, or masculinity as it's defined is the problem. Uh, now, I know my feelings on this, mm-hmm. but I'd like to hear your response to that. Well, I would be more convinced of that if I didn't see very similar trends around the world, including you know, the education trends. So Scandinavia, for example, has the biggest gender gaps in education. Uh, and this relates a bit to one of your earlier comments about identity. That's why Norway has now established a government commission on boys and men. You know, Norway. Uh, and honestly, I think one of the reasons that's not controversial in Norway is because nobody thinks the Norwegians hate women mm-hmm. uh, or want to kind of roll back the tide on any of that gender stuff. But they are looking at it. They have a 20-point gap in college college graduation rates in Norway. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of panic in the Scandinavian countries about what's what's going on. Um, but I would say in terms of the, the male... So, so the difference between the US and other countries is the availability of guns. Sure. Honestly, to be very blunt about it. Um, and so that does cause, like, th- that causes all kinds of problems. Um, now, the mass shootings that you referred to are obviously hugely tragic and quite rightly get lots of attention. And you're right, they're predominantly men. And in fact, men account for 95% of all violent crimes across the board in every country, every in every period of human history. So that shouldn't surprise us. And that does speak to some real differences between them. But also men take their own, white men especially, take their own lives with guns. Uh, and so it is actually gun, gun-driven suicides. And it's one of the reasons why the male suicide rate is so much higher. And so there's an interaction here between the availability of weapons of a particular kind. But I want to broaden it out and ask this question. Is it, looking at that, is, can we surmise that something, I mean, frankly, physiological, biological, about masculinity and maleness is the problem? Or is it a situation, or, or do you believe it's a situation where all of the problems that you've laid out, all of the challenges that you've laid out facing uh, men right now is expressed in these problems? In other words, all of the problems, the economic struggles, et cetera, et cetera, that men are facing, the outgrowth of that are, is everything from suicide rates to deaths of despair to mass shootings, et cetera, et cetera, on men. Like, it's kind of a chicken or the egg question. Yeah, I, I, you've, you've ended in the right place, I think, which is how, how do you know is the chicken and yeah. egg problem. But, but I would say that I, I, I don't like to start any of these discussions with a prior that masculinity is the problem. Mm-hmm. Which is, I think, what un- underpins some of the toxic masculinity debates, etc. Like wh- whatever term you want to use, and instead, I think I-, I think it's better to look at the data, see what's happening, and then say, okay, so what's driving that? And then say, is that partly about what's happening around masculinity? So, for example, let's talk about crime. Right, men account for the overwhelming amount of violent crime. Men are you know, more innately, and I'll use that word, innately predisposed towards being violent or being aggressive right that that is just one of those facts which i really think you have to be deeply committed to the blank slate everything socialized view of human nature given that it's always been true but it's also true that until the last couple of years violent crime rates had almost halved in the u.s in just 30 years it's also true that violent crime rates are much lower in some countries than in other countries that neighbor each other all right so is masculine, you know, are men violent? Are men more aggressive? Yeah. Is there anything predetermined about that? No. And in fact, culture is what determines the expression of that aggression or violence or the non-expression of it. So what frustrates me about a lot of these debates about masculinity, is it biological, is it cultural, etc. And here I'm going further and, and be way beyond what you said, David. So I apologize. I'm like not answering that bit of it directly, but it's like, It's not that acknowledging there are natural differences makes culture less important. It makes it more important because culture determines how those things are uh, are expressed. Is it good or bad that men are on average more risk-taking? 
Answer, yes, it is good and it is bad. And whether it's more good or bad will determine which activities we promote and which we don't. So that's a great segue to, uh, to a discussion of the creation of culture. In the past several years, we've seen right-wing politicians like Josh Hawley, uh, Ted Cruz, talk about the so-called attack on masculinity. Uh, we've seen, you know, YouTubers whose entire business model seem to be repackaging and selling uh, uh, sort of uh, one version of masculinity. We've seen gun marketing, I'm just pulling that out of a hat, uh, yeah. intertwined with all sorts of insane messages about masculinity, trying to kind of fuse self-perception of masculinity with the idea of buying weapons, owning weapons, shooting weapons. Why do you think these messages have become so effective? And, and the arguably more important question as part of this is, what do you think would be a more constructive counter-narrative and counter-programming to those kinds of messages i think they're effective because firstly they identify and hawley's a great example of this um they identify some real problems so if you read some passages of what hawley's he has his own book and his own speech actually i'm like yeah that's the same data that i've got mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes i'm with you so far senator but then what he does is he says yeah these men are struggling and you know why and he doesn't say because of what's happened to the economy or because of what's happening elsewhere. He says because of the left. Because mm -hmm. the left is obsessed with toxic masculinity and birthing people and et cetera. The left hates masculinity. The, he the left hates men. The left would rather have a world where got rid of men. And he can find enough examples of some crazy stuff on the left. To just, just, you know, it's a straw woman <laughs> that he creates. In, in his, but he says it's feminism's fault, et cetera. And so if you're feeling pissed off, if you're struggling as a man, I hear you. It's their fault. Vote for me. Do I have any policy prescriptions? No, because I'm a culture warrior, and so don't need don't need to actually be able to do anything about that. But he's channeled it, and what he and what others do is that they successfully wrap together these real anxieties that a lot of men feel, or women feel on behalf of the men in their lives, I should add, mm -hmm. and says, yeah, and that's also about the Second Amendment, and that's also about Americanism, that's also about religion. And so it gets wrapped up into this sense of like being a real Christian American white man, right? Mm -hmm. and, and masculinity, so Hawley says it's the tip of the spear of the left's attack against America. I don't think that's even plausibly true, although I have lots of criticisms of the left, but I know why he's doing that, because it, it's visceral. It mm -hmm. gets to this really kind of, and then you can attach a bunch of other things to that visceral sense of your identity as a man being, um, being under attack. And by the way, that doesn't only work with Christian white men, although I've just mentioned them. You, mm -hmm. you gave the stats about black men, and I was very struck by a poll which found that while half of American men now agree that today men are sometimes criticized just for acting like men that's the that's the quote in the survey black men are more likely to say that's true and mm. so um and as for a more positive response it would be to say we get it here are a bunch of problems so for example would it be a terrible idea to have an office of men's health focused mm. on issues around suicide and male mental health and we have a lot we have seven offices of women's health i think that wouldn't be a bad thing would it be a good idea if cdc recognized the suicide gap facing men and had some work around that you know at least a i don't think that would be a terrible idea would it be a terrible idea to have a recruitment drive for male teachers we have a massive recruitment drive for women into stem and most recently women into construction i'm here for that but mm -hmm. what about the fact that we have you know just emptied out not only education but social work and psychology of, of men why not just do some of that stuff and then if you have an infrastructure bill that will create jobs largely for men, two-thirds male, two-thirds of the jobs in the infrastructure bill go, will go to men. Actually, black men as much as white men and Hispanic men a little bit more because they're so represented in the construction industry. Don't hide from that fact, as mm -hmm. the administration does when they're challenged on it. Own it. Make, a, make it a feature, not a bug. And just say, here are all the things we're doing on behalf of women. There's lots more to do for women. But you know what? The fact that this bill is actually the first piece of legislation for a long time that will specifically help working class men of all races and ethnicities. I'm proud of that as a Democrat because working class men have had it pretty rough um, for the last few years. Why not say that? And 
simple things like that, I believe, would take the wind out of the sails of the attack from the right. The silence on these issues from the left just creates this huge political opening for the right. And they're seizing it. You know, Josh Hawley is many things, but stupid is not one of them. Yeah, they, they are definitely seizing it. And, and, and as I said, I go back to those election results. I mean, Donald Trump increasing Republican margins among uh, black men, they are definitely not only uh, the rhetoric is finding uh, some more, um, a more receptive audience uh, be, because of, in part, the silence from the Democrats and the, and the broader left. Okay, so mm. we've talked about the problems You've mentioned a few solutions um, in the political governmental realm. And, and I want to add one thing because we just had him on our podcast. We, we did have Senator Chris Murphy on our podcast who, as far as I can tell, is one of the few people who's talking about this or at least adjacent to this with uh, his legislative proposals on loneliness uh, uh, I feel like a lot of what he's saying has to do with with what you're talking about, you know, loneliness, uh, disaffection, et cetera, et cetera. So I think at least there's one senator who seems to be thinking about it. But I guess beyond what you've laid out, is there anything else that we need to be doing as a society to address uh, these problems uh, uh right now, the problems that you diagnose? Is there any one person or organization that you would point to that you would say, yeah, that is the right way forward. That, that is the path forward. That is a constructive uh, model to be replicated and expanded. Well, I'll start with some of these institutional and leadership roles. So uh, Senator Murphy has been publicly talking about this. He's been kind about my book and said, we cannot cede this ground to the right. I was just on the Surgeon General's podcast. Mm -hmm. talking about male mental health and he's very interested in these issues and leaning into it and so i think there are a number of people now who are realizing for a mixture of political and policy and perhaps personal reasons that this is this is not a space we can ignore any longer and in a sense just need to talk about it in the right way so a congressional caucus on boys and men is not a terrible idea I've already mentioned an office for men's health. Most states have a commission on women or a commission on women and girls focusing on the specific issues through that lens. Washington state, obviously a blue state, is considering a commission on boys and men. That's coming up for the next legislative session. I think that would be great. And I can imagine other states would would follow suit to go alongside the one existing one for women and girls, not get rid of it. So there's some people on the right who are saying we should get rid of all these commissions. But I think a much more sensible approach is to do to do both. And then in terms of actual policy, I've mentioned a couple of these in passing, but but I do think a massive recruitment drive of male teachers is long overdue. I, when it's 23% and falling every year, I, I really start to worry you're at a tipping point where teaching just becomes something that fewer and fewer men want to do. Uh, no, and by the way, can I just true. add to that? Uh, yeah. Just uh, echo that because, hmm. look, I have a you know I, I have children. One of my children is a is a boy. I, I think it's important uh, for him to. He's got great teachers. Uh, a, a lot of women teachers, great. Lot of, some men teachers. I think it's good for kids to see uh, both genders uh, in role model uh, leadership roles at a young age. Absolutely. I mean, I think it was Gloria Steinem who who said, "Look, you know, what do children? How do children learn about the roles of men and women? Well, in in those in those early early years, and especially in education. I mean, early years education is a male free zone. Um, and in fact, it's sort of between two and three percent of early years educators are male. And one of my stylized facts is that as a share of the occupation, there are only half as many men in kindergarten as there are women flying U.S. military planes." So we have wow. more female fighter. We have twice as many female fighter pilots as we do male kindergarten teachers. And I, look, I'm again, I'm, I'm all here for female fighter pilots. The more, the more, the merrier. I just actually just want the ones who are good at shooting down the other ones or whatever. But, but, but again, I think it's 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 not good if we just see an elementary schools. So only one in ten there, and there's you know a number of elementary schools where there are no male teachers. So, and interestingly. I was just looking at the data on this recently. Whilst the share of male teachers in public schools has continued to decline, it's just started going up in private K-12 schools. Hmm. So that's interesting. That's early days. But I'm starting to think, are some of the men starting to vote with their feet? Or are those private schools starting to react a little bit to parental demand? They're starting to say, look, if you want your son especially to be in a place where there are male teachers, male social workers, there are half as many as there were 20 years ago. Psychologists, half as many. 
Um, we, you know, we've got to do something to reverse the trends in those directions. But also the issue that you touched on a few minutes ago around fatherhood. I find it quite extraordinary that we've now given the, the military three months paid parental leave for mothers or fathers or technically birthing or non-birthing parents. But dads in the military get three months of, of leave. What about civilians? Hey, what are the lessons there for the rest of the month? What message do we send to fathers when we don't give them time off Amen. to be with their kids? I mean, just like, and, and the fact that, I mean, Heather Boucher, who's in the Council of Economic Advisors, has written a lot about this. And, and the fact that our labor market institutions are so unreformed by comparison to the changes in our family life is extraordinary. Which it's, it's unbelievable to me that now most families, if they have both parents, are both working. And the labor market continues to act almost like nothing happened, right? So that, that, that just the failure to, to just give more flexibility, more leave, et cetera, is just uh, is huge. And that has to be for dads as much as for mums. This, this message about fathers has been lost between a right that insists, of course, dads matter if they're married, and a left that has sometimes, frankly, been a bit reluctant to talk about the importance of fathers, for fear of offending same-sex parents or saying single mums aren't doing a good job or whatever. And and that's just crazy talk, right? Dads do matter. And I think if we can't have it, we need a politics of fatherhood. And I think that would go a long way actually to addressing some of those concerns we had earlier because there's a lot of dads out there who, who see being a father as very important and they don't hear enough from our leaders about that. Richard Rees is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and the author of the book called Of Boys and Men, why the modern male is struggling, why it matters, and what to do about it. You can find his work at richardvreeves.com. Richard, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you, David. Great conversation. That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Levertime Premium, you get to hear our interview earlier this week with economist Isabella Weber, one of the first economists to raise the alarm about profit-driven inflation. To listen to Levertime Premium, just head over to levernews.com to become a supporting subscriber. When you do, you get access to all of Lever's premium content, including our weekly newsletters and our live events. And that's all for just eight bucks a month or 70 bucks for the year. One last favor. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Levertime on your favorite podcast app. The app you are listening to right now, take 10 seconds and give us a positive review in that app. And make sure to check out all of the incredible reporting our team has been doing over at levernews.com. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Rock the boat. The Levertime Podcast is a production of The Lever and The Lever Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, David Sirota. Our producer is Frank Capello with help from Lever producer Jared Jacang Mayer. 